Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Today, something a little different on the Indo-Daily. We're bringing you the first episode in a major new podcast series from the Irish Independent. I'm Not Here to Hurt You is the true story of how John O'Hegarty went from being a high-flying academic to one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers. You can listen to all six episodes right now or by searching I'm Not Here to Hurt You wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for helping make the podcast number one in Ireland and for charting in over 100 countries. Just a heads up that this episode contains themes and strong language that some listeners may find upsetting. The first robbery was done quite literally at the end of my road. It was cobbled together. I think as they they went on, they became a little bit more sophisticated and developed. I bought a gun in Smith's toy store. I do know I'd written the note. That was the important bit to me, was that I'm not here to hurt you or anyone in the bank. I normally go into these places dressed as a courier, and how could I make myself effectively disappear? So I'm one guy. I'm not in a a high-powered vehicle. I don't have accomplices. I don't have all these things that you imagine from the movies. I'm one guy, and I need money, and I need it quickly, and I need it without incident. I thought disguise would seem to be the natural way to go, so I can go in and I can queue as a builder, a painter, or a courier, any number of things. I'd have always the buttons and zips and everything removed from items, and I'd have them Velcroed. My real stroke of genius was a hat. Sawed hair into it, so it looked like it was in a ponytail. I collected beard shavings from my own beard, so they would look natural, and created what looked like a beard, so that when I walked out of the bank, I could rub my face and the beard would disappear. The hat would come off, so I'd go from a long-haired guy with ponytail to a skinhead or shaven head, and obviously the uniform would come off, and I would be somebody very, very different. And then I'd be on a push by Camley, cycling away. My thoughts were, no matter how fast the response time of the guards, unless it's within 30 seconds to a minute, they're going to be looking for somebody very different. And I'd know all the, the routes because I'd know the area, from again, from working as a, as a messenger. And so I'd be able to disappear. You're listening to I'm Not Here to Hurt You, Episode 1, The Accident. I'm Kevin Doyle, and in my almost 20 years as a journalist, I've covered all sorts of stories, big and small. 
Every now and again, you meet somebody who's hard to figure out. And in this story, that person is John O'Hegarty. This was a project that I thought would take two weeks at most. It's been over a year. The reason for that, I think it's that when John first came into studio, he had only ever retold his story in shorthand. They say life is a series of moments. Well, he's had a lot of extraordinary moments. And now I know that he has perhaps unintentionally buried many of those memories. And with good reason. He was an academic scholar with all the opportunities you could hope for in life. And somehow became Ireland's most prolific bank robber. Yesterday's podcast on the Kinhans is doing really well, but uh, I definitely think... So let me take you back to the 5th of May 2022. It was a time when the newsroom was focused on the FBI's attempts to bring down the Kinnaton cartel and for a bit of light relief, there was the Waggata Christie trial. So I'm just wondering if anyone else has anything they want to throw on the table? I went to an ordinary production meeting with Garrett Mulhall and Mary Carroll, who work with me on the Indo Daily podcast, and I brought an email. Let me think, John, I'm just going to read you the email and tell me what you think because I could explain it and and I would probably... Hello, Mr. Peter Vandermeersch. Peter is my boss here at the newspaper. We have spoken before concerning my documentary for Belgian television. However, I have a very different question for you. I'm looking for an Irish journalist. More importantly, a story. For years, journalists have asked him, in exchange for money, if they could tell his story. But he found him too sensational and he avoided the media. He never wanted to sell his story. So we saw each other last weekend in Leuven, where he came to visit me. And he revealed to me that after all these years, he's ready to come out with his story. But only to an Irish journalist from a quality newspaper or magazine. In his own words, he wants to break the taboo surrounding being an ex-criminal and an ex-prisoner. He feels heavily stigmatized even after all these years. If you know a suitable journalist in Ireland who is interested in an interview with John, I can put them both in touch. Thank you for listening to my request. Sincerely, Isabel. And Isabel, here we are. <laughs> All these months later after you, you, you wrote that email. Yes. How did you get to know John first when you were in college? That was a long time ago. Um, I'm 47 now and I was 18 years old. It was my first year uh, away from my parents studying in Leuven history. The academic year was just started for one or two months. And I met John at a party. We started talking and myself, I always had the feeling that I made a click with the Irish. I think Irish people are storytellers and they have a good sense of humor and um, I made a very, very easy, very easily a, a click with him. So we spent time with each other and with other friends of his, I think, for six to seven, eight months in Leuven, quite intensively, because it's the first year eh, away from parents. And he was studying philosophy at the High Philosophy Institute. But then after a year, I decided to move to Amsterdam and continue uh, other studies there. And then we lost track of each other. And then I heard from Stefan, his former housemate, that he moved back to Dublin. And we had nothing yet at that time. eh? There was no email address. There was no Facebook. There was no Google. So we lost complete track. 
10 years later, I uh, Google was there, Facebook was there, and I thought like, how oh, how must it go with John? I wondered what what is he doing now and blah blah blah. So you 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 started. I don't know if you did it, <laughs> but uh, I started doing um, research on former people that I met when I was younger. You know, when I was a student, and so I was doing research on John as well, like um, John O'Haggerty. And the first thing I found out was all these articles. Uh, about the politest bank robber of Ireland. And I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. What was he like in college? John was always funny. Whenever you met him, you had the feeling there was um, a, a very light energy around you. You know, it was a very positive energy, a light energy. And he had always had a good sense of humor on things that happened in life. He was also a very reflective person. And in my sense... He's somebody who is very sensitive. It is sometimes as if he sees things and feels things sometimes before someone else could do. And he he's really well in explaining those things. He's very good at reflecting. So he's a very clever uh, man, an intelligent man, well-hearted and um, open to experimenting. Uh, with all the philosophers, philosophy students at that moment. Like Michel Foucault wasn't afraid of uh, trying out soft drugs eh? and things like that, like, like flirting with it, like what does it do with you, but more in an investigative way, not in an um, abusive way. And yeah. tell me, Isabel, what did you think when you discovered via Google that he was in prison? I couldn't believe it. That was a shock. That was a shock because I think I saw in John maybe somebody who, well, you have the general law in a country and he would flirt with it. I'll be honest, eh? like doing something wrong, but he wouldn't harm a person. So John, for me, was I saw him always as a very good-hearted person towards other people. If you are in need, John will be there to help you. So when I read it, of course, in the newspaper, I couldn't believe it. But when it said the politest bank robber, then I could say, oh yeah, because he was always very polite in everything. When he talks, he's, he's, he's very um, eloquent uh, and friendly. So um, so that that is a part of it I understood. <laughs> and the rest, I didn't, and it made me cute. I really wanted to know how he was. And that's when years later, because first I had the intention, should I write to him? He's in prison now. I didn't do it because I didn't want to feel a woman writing a prisoner. That's, that, that gives another, how do you call it, association. <laughs> you have these women admiring prisoners and they write to them letters and things like that. So um, for years... I, it was in the back of my mind, John is now there in prison, and what happened to him? So the, the curiosity stayed. I was only aware of what he experienced when I then finally went to Dublin, went to Bray. And um, But to be fair and to be sincere, my first question really was, how are you? What happened to you? How come? He did all his years he was sentenced to. And I remember that he told me that um, one of the guards told him or asked him, like, why why did you do the full sentence? You are one of the prisoners that could have asked to become free earlier. I'm pretty sure that he really did it to have done it in the most pure way. 
to to finish the punishment that was given to him and then afterwards being able to let it go. And I think that's the difficulty. Then he went out of prison, but he couldn't let go because society is not ready um, to accept ex-prisoners or ex-criminals. And that, uh, that's the experience he has. We decided to take Isabel up on her offer. And a few weeks later, John came into the Irish Independent offices. From what Isabel had told me, I was fascinated to meet him. But I also wanted to find out if he was serious about telling his full story and about that moment in 2002 that changed everything. Thanks for coming in. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? Good to meet you. Um, yeah. Come on in, yeah. Come on. In, yeah. yeah it's, um, Why are you doing this podcast or what do you hope to get out of it? Um, what do I hope to get out of it? I hope to tell my story um, for a number of reasons. To bring some closure to some things for myself personally, but also to to open up possibly a discussion on other things. Um, and it, 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 it was time, quite frankly. It was just time. Some of what we're going to talk about, you've bottled up for a long time. Is that fair to say? I would have, yeah. I would have, I would have. Why do you think that is? Circumstance, um, largely. I was... In a position where, um, for the last ten years, anyway, I was trying to focus on on other aspects of 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 my life, and um, this is, some of that emotional stuff just w- wasn't ready to be unpackaged. Should we say? So we're going to unpackage some of that, but I think to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. Tell me about your upbringing. So I would have spent my early years up until about the age of 12 um, raised in Tala. And after that, we'd moved on to Dundrum. Very happy childhood. Um, I think you'd said to me just before we went on air there, um, like yourself, you know, nothing notable. And that's not a negative. Yeah, I, I had everything I needed. I had everything a child can ask for. So finished up by doing the Leaving Cert quite young. I was 16, fairly mediocre results and felt I was a bit young to, to, to make any life choices. And then went on to, to further studies, yeah. so You chose journalism first. I did. I enjoyed writing. My uncle had been a journalist for his, his um, early part of his career. It was something that attracted me. So yeah, it was good. And I, I worked for a little while in the, in the Tribune. In the Sunday Tribune? Yeah, yeah. What kind of stuff did you do? Just doing, I was there for a summer. Um, so I was out on, on work assignments with the photographer one day and then with the sub-editor the next. And then, funnily enough, um, just coming back to me now, my only real assignment um, at the end of the summer, I was sent out to sit in the courts and do uh, court reporting. So that was your first taste of the courts? That was my first taste of the courts, little did I know. I pretty much went straight from the journalism into the first year of an undergraduate of, uh, in philosophy. You went to Trinity and then you went to a fairly prestigious college university in, in Leuven in Belgium as well. So, you know, you're, they're high-end colleges. Did you feel you fitted in? Did you enjoy that life? 
But yeah, I did, um, especially my experience over in Louvain. Beautiful little town near Brussels, uh, medieval university. I was loving every minute of it. I was being given lectures by people whose books I was reading. So, you know, the, the, these were, these were um, heavy hitters when it came to academic philosophy. I left Belgium after a number of years to come back to Trinity to do the Masters. Yeah, so it was going pretty well for you. It was going, it was going great, yeah. yeah. Was it when you finished up college, you set up this courier business as a, side, a kind of a side earner? Since a kid, I was in love of anything mechanical, bikes particularly. And I set up the company in 99. It was a no-brainer. I could be out, outdoors, fresh air, loved exercise. And it was a nice compliment to the, 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 the heavy studying that was involved and required of doing a master's degree, particularly on the subject I'd chosen, because typical of me, I couldn't have chosen something nice and easy. I went for something quite um, obtuse. We worked out of the back of a van off Pier Street, because we had no premises. Um, and then we got a premises. We were going maybe eight months at that point, and And it took off. It took off really well, so... Year one, end of year one, I had 14 people working for me. And then we get to the accident. What do do. you remember about that day? I remember it was a Friday. It was raining. All the guys were out in the road delivering parcels. Those Fridays were always busy. Um, they always got busy about four o'clock. And then if you throw a bit of Dublin rain on top of that, um, yeah, it can get a bit hectic. I was on the radio in the office. I think it had come to about five o'clock and we, we kind of knew where we were at for the rest of the evening. Um, but I knew I had to go out in the road and help the guys because they were just getting bogged down with, with parcels. And um, I went out. On the road, picked up a few parcels. Everything was all all good up to that point. So what happens next? I crossed Bagot Street the wrong way. Unfortunately, I was technically contra flow, even though I was just crossing the street. Um, A pedestrian came out from behind a, a, a parked vehicle. I went to cycle behind him. And bearing in mind when I say cycle, I'm talking about just off walking pace. You know, I'm doing maybe six, seven miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, tops. He clocked me out of the corner of his eye at the last moment and went to anticipate me going in front of him, stepped back, and in doing so, fell over my front wheel. And obviously the bike made contact with him then at that point. He fell back, landed on his backside, and then went back and hit his head. Can you still see all of that? Yeah, today? I can see it very clearly. Yeah, where he landed, I can still feel the impact, even as light as it may have been. I can, I could, I could feel the impact. You know? That was the moment that uh, everything changed. Initially, he went back. He had received what appeared to be a. a um, graze or cut on his head um, his glasses fell out of his front pocket I remember that I remember picking them up from 
But, you know, he, he picked himself up and, well, he picked himself up after, obviously, we, we made sure he was okay to stand up and he insisted he was fine. Um, lovely man. Lovely, lovely man. Can you remember his name? I can. His name was Roger. We had some conversation about calling an ambulance and I very much wanted him to. And he, did, he really didn't want to. And I said to him, look, what eventually got him to go get one was I said, Roger, I, I'm, I'm only new in a, in a business and I wouldn't like anything to risk, you know, affecting my insurance. Would you, you know, would you just go and get it checked out? You're sure it's half five, you know. And he went in the ambulance. Um, I remember him actually chatting to me about, I think it was his daughter or his granddaughter. Not his granddaughter, his daughter it would have been. And she had been over near where I'd been studying. And, you know, so we were chatting away and um, he was actually a little bit, a little bit peeved that he had to get the ambulance. <laughs> More, I think, because it was taking up time and it was a Friday evening, it was raining. And I don't need this, a, a bit of a plaster and I'm fine. So, yeah, he got, he got the ambulance. There was quite a bit of commotion. People come out of the shops and, you know, I had, I, I went out to see him in Vincent's Hospital, maybe about an hour and a half, two hours after. In you know, I, I imagined he'd be sitting in in a chair, looking a bit disgruntled. So you're obviously concerned enough, though. I was concerned said. enough. I, yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I'd built up a bit of a rapport with him over the, the twenty minutes or so, chatting to him, and I, of course, I had a concern. I, I, I knocked the man down, whether it was whatever the circumstances leading up, or however serious it was. I, my actions ended up in in somebody on the ground. So of course, I wanted to go out and make sure he was okay. And when I got to Vincent's, um, a nurse asked me to wait for a moment and then she asked me to escort her to a room where there was a doctor. And I looked, the minute I walked into the room, I looked with the friend I said, I'm, I'm just here to see somebody I, I think should be waiting in, in A&E. And they said, yeah, yeah, did you have the accident, sir, uh, I said, yeah. And they said, we've uh, some bad news for you, John, unfortunately. Um, and question was taken to Bowman's um, about 20 minutes ago. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, I, I had a bicycle accident with a guy, he did a little cut in the head, it must be somebody else. And he said, no, no, that, that's, that's, that's the gentleman, John. And I, I was arguing with him for, for a couple of minutes, going, no, no, you have this wrong. This is mixed up identities or... So, yeah, he had been removed or taken to Beaumont um, because obviously they weren't happy with, with something and Beaumont was treating him for, um, I believe it was, it was, it was brain-related um, or head-related, obviously. Um, and that then began a, a, yeah, that then began a... A whole other debate. Was there some contention afterwards, though, about that conversation that you recall having with him? There was a lot of contention about a lot of things after that, um, Kevin, yeah. Some people, I don't know who they were. I don't know what their role was. I stayed in touch with Roger's business partner. Um, throughout, um, obviously, I'd gone out to see Roger that night in the hospital. Uh, when you say contention over the conversation, I'm just wondering what you're referring over the, to. The conversation around the ambulance and how 
how well I suppose you describe that he was at the scene. So this was a kind of slightly two separate things. So one being, did his injuries um, look serious? To me, they didn't. Um, obviously, I'm not qualified, but they, they they didn't. And he was conscious and he was he was adamant he didn't want to get an ambulance. But then on the other hand, when you say there was a bit of contention, there was a, obviously that started the process then, not the process, but that started what turned into quite a lengthy um, period where public, certain members of the public, um, the media, um, unfortunately, got some of the details of the accidents very wrong uh, in some cases. Um, to give you an example, um, it was reported somewhere that I was six foot one. I think you'll you'll confirm, uh, confirm that's Kevin. Accurate. That's not by any means accurate. I had dreadlocks. I had an English accent. And I hit him at up to 40 miles an hour, which is, I'd like to meet him, anybody that does 40 miles an hour in a push bike, it's a, it's a good speed to be doing. So yeah, uh, they were, there was a lot of, there was a lot of stuff being, being thrown around. Um, but from the point of view of his injuries, no. Roger Handy's accident did briefly make headlines. Liveline is one of Ireland's most popular talk shows. And on the 4th of December, 2002, Roger's daughter, Leslie, went on radio to talk about her father as he was in hospital fighting for his life. Hello, good afternoon and you're very welcome to Liveline. Leslie, good afternoon to you. Hi. It's your father that was... Uh... It is, yeah. And we know, we heard he was on a life support machine. How is he now, Leslie? Well, the life support was switched off on Friday evening and we were told that he'd have a few hours to live. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we stayed in that hospital three days and three nights waiting for him to pass on. And he's still hanging in. What age is he? 56. And when he was knocked down by the push bike going in the wrong direction, the courier on the push bike, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously he didn't realise there and then how serious his head injury was. No, because he was still conscious, but he lost consciousness. At about in St. Vincent's at about 7.30 that evening and he's never regained consciousness and the brain damage is so severe that there's no hope at all for any kind of recuperation. I mean, we're talking about a man that's just sitting in a, lying in a bed waiting to die because his brain has been so severely damaged by that person's reckless actions that they didn't even think the consequences. I mean, they can't even have been looking where they were going to mow my dad down, like. How did you find out that Roger Handy had passed away then a few days later? The accident, I believe, was a Friday. He passed away perhaps four or five days later. I had heard through um, phoning the hospital. Um, I had been walking into a a customer's office a couple of days after um, and heard my voice coming out of a radio, or my my name rather, coming out of a a radio. 
Um, and it's really caught me. I thought, this is crazy. What's, what's this? I was walking down the stairs and I was in the printer's office and the, the guy working there hit the, the off button. I said, well, what's this? You know, so, yeah, um, information had started flying around at that point and um, it, had, it, it, had, it had drawn quite a bit of attention. Um, so, as I said to you, I heard about Roger's death um, on a late afternoon. Um, uh, yeah, even just sitting here thinking about it, it's, 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 it's quite surreal. Did you ever speak to any of his family? Um, no, not directly. Um, I would have met his family at the inquest. Um, and obviously I've, I've tried to make contact yeah, since. It was the paramedic I met outside who was outside having a cigarette actually who turned around, recognised me, turned around and said, um, you're the guy that, and I said, yeah. And he said, I just want to tell you something. I said, yeah. He said, this is going to be really important for you. I said, what? He said, that man didn't have a bad word to say about you in the back of the ambulance. He spoke really highly of you. You should know that. I am, and those words were were so important to me, so important to me. You were nicknamed the Killer Courier. I was nicknamed the Killer Courier, yeah. And in as much as I had people around me and, and friends and family and, and whatnot telling me, look, it was this, it was that, it was an act, those words you just said to me there, literally bounced around inside my skull. The first one being um, the important one. Coming up, and I'm not here to hurt you. We were together for nine years, but we were only been married for two years. Not long after the accident um, and Roger's death, I set about on a quite a distinct course of, I guess, self-destruction. That's very hard. We thought we had our whole lives ahead of us. I don't want to say heroin found me, but it almost it felt that way. It felt that way. The need for money became really intense very quickly. I'm Not Here to Hurt You was presented by Kevin Doyle. Series producer is Gareth Mulhall. Executive producer is Mary Carroll. Assistant producer and sound design by John Smith, with additional sound recordings by Gavin Hennessy. A special thank you to RTE Archives, Isabel Junius, Rory Tevlin, and Graeme Davidson. If you've been affected by any of the topics discussed in this episode, the Irish Independent has a list of helplines available. You can find them at independent.ie forward slash news forward slash helplines. Thank you for listening.
If you want to listen to the rest of the series, search for I'm Not Here to Hurt You wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. The Indo Daily will be back with you tomorrow.